Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 34 and 35, just as a launching pad, because we are in, we are in the second week of a series on Christ embodied, the doctrine and practice of the local church. Last week, we talked about the definition of a local church from the Bible, and the local church is a group, we defined it as the local church is a group of those in Christ who are fully responsible for one another's discipleship, both collectively and individually, in order to disciple the nations. That's what a local church is. A group of Christians who are fully responsible for each other, collectively and individually, in order to disciple the nations. And so, this week we're going to talk about church membership as we continue our series. John 13, verses 34 and 35, just as the beginning category of thought. This is the night before Jesus dies. This is a Thursday night, his last dinner with his disciples. He just washed their feet. He's about to take communion with them and then go to the garden, get arrested and die the next day. And this is what he says, verse 34. I give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have loved us in Christ. You demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You demonstrate your love for us in saving us so that we might find all of our life and joy in you. And you are the first and best of beings. And so to find our joy in you is the essence and apex of love. We thank you for that. We thank you that you first loved us when we were running away from you. Stuck and stubborn in our sin. Yet you gave us the gospel. You opened our eyes. We have trusted in you and turned from our sins by your grace. And here we are, Lord, and we want to know you more. We want to understand what it means to love one another. If this is a command from the Lord Jesus to us, Lord, we need your help, not only to understand it, but to live it out as a church. This will take the rest of our lives. So we pray for your help. We know, Lord, you command us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because you are working in us. Both to desire and to do your good pleasure. So work desires in our heart for, for worship and obedience. And then work in us that we would apply it in our lives. We pray for any of our non-Christian friends who are here with us this morning that you would save them even this morning. Open their eyes to see the beauty and majesty of our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we want to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We want the Lamb to receive His due. We want as many people as possible to repent from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And not only that, we want to be even more greedy than that, or more. we have higher ambitions than that. We don't want to just see them converted. We want to see them grow in Christ. We want to see them being disciple-makers, who make disciples themselves, and, and as they gospelize Christians and non-Christians, we want to see them serving as the body of Christ. 
We want to see every unreached people group reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ in every language, tribe, and nation. We want God to be glorified with a white, hot passion of the saints as they're informed by scripture and biblical truth. And not only that, we want to be, we want to be part of it. We don't just want to sit on the sideline and see God do it. We actually want to play a role in it. We want a share of it. We want God to use us to this end. Every Christian does. No Christian wants to be useless. No Christian wants to be insignificant with their lives. And you know what the good news is? God wants that too. God wants us to be used by Him. He commands us to be used by Him. And He empowers us to be used by Him. The problem is that not every Christian connects this desire to participate with these goals with the obligation, necessity, and privilege of being formally committed to a church. We all want to be used by God for great purposes. But not many Christians connect that desire to this obligation of being formally and practically committed to a local church as a member. They don't make the connection. And so, many who are committed to a church, maybe you're a member here today, even those who are committed to churches don't think it's necessary for other Christians to commit to churches. So they say, well, I'm committed, but I don't think it's necessary for other Christians to be committed. There are some who think it's an obligation and privilege to be part of a local church, and they want others to know that, but they don't know how to articulate it. They don't know how to argue that it is actually a necessity that one is part of a local church. One of my friends, Pete Vargas, who works for the Master's College, tweeted online a few months ago, or actually last year now, my generation doesn't believe church membership to be a biblical obligation. Pastor friends, teach more on this subject, please. And Pete is right. And he's in my generation. So our generation doesn't understand or believe in the biblical obligation of church membership. And it's not just my generation that misunderstands this biblical teaching. There are many different generations that misunderstand this. And here's why. We rightfully emphasize that you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves it's a gift of God not of works or not of yourselves not of works so that no one can boast we believe that you're a Christian by personal faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from sin not by joining a church not by baptism not by doing good works and so we, we and that, that's a precious truth we, we fight for that we defend that you're justified by faith alone apart from works that's how you are in a right standing with God. But we argue wrongfully from there that because you're saved by, by grace through faith and not by works, you don't need to be part of a church. And it's true, you don't need to be part of a church to be saved, but you do need to be part of a church if you're going to obey the Lord Jesus. And we are Baptists. We understand that you don't need to be baptized to be saved. But do you need to be baptized to obey the Lord Jesus? Yes, yes right? We understand that you don't need to take communion to be saved. But in obedience to Jesus, must you take communion? Yes. He commands it, right? So, so just because it's not the way you get saved, doesn't mean it's not necessary for life and godliness and joy in God and loving others. It's, it's absolutely necessary. And so our evangelical culture today, that's Bible-believing, gospel-professing churches, a lot of them think that Church membership is not necessary. And you can see it in their churches as it either being optional or an extra thing that Christians 
have a chance to do, but it's not necessary to do. Much of our Southern Baptist culture, we've said this many times before, that we have bloated membership roles in the Southern Baptist Convention. 16 million members with under 6 million on a given Sunday. 10 million members missing every single Sunday. That can't be right. These are members who are committed to the church. And so we're rightly discontent with the health of our churches. Sometimes it leads to sinful frustration and cynicism in our own hearts about our church. So God sent you here this morning and he sent me here this morning that we would encounter Jesus as we meditate here on this, um, on this truth about John 13, 34 and 35 and other texts related. So John 13, 34 and 35 says this, Love one another as I have loved you. Just, just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. Command is very clear. It's very broad. Love each other. Now, I, I would argue, if I had time, that the rest of the New Testament actually fills out what it means to love one another. So, what does love mean? What does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to love fellow Christians? It means obeying everything else the New Testament tells us to do towards one another. Right? Have you ever tried to love someone and they misunderstood it as, love, as not love? So, you might love someone by correcting them. And they'll be like, that's not loving. You're not loving me right now when you tell me that I'm wrong. You know, children can often misinterpret, interpret, misinterpret spanking as a lack of love. I can still remember the first time I was sitting in church as a nine-year-old, and my Sunday school teacher said, you know your parents spank you because they love you? I raised my hand, what? I didn't know that. You know, children misunderstand that. But a misunderstanding of love doesn't mean it's not love, right? Now, that's not to say every time you're attempting to love, you're always right. You could actually be misloving them. But the point here is that just because it doesn't feel loving doesn't mean that it's actually not loving. Love is defined by God. For God is love. And He teaches us how to love by His Word. And if we set aside His Word and say, well, my feelings are going to dictate what true love is, then we will inevitably distort what love is. So, if we're going to love one another as church members, I'm arguing that if you're, going to, if you're going to obey this command to love one another as Christ loved you, if you're going to obey that command, you must be part of a local church. And if you're not part of a local church, you actually will be disobeying that command in some significant ways in your life. Okay, so there's three categories here. I have three, uh, three categories of thought to hang, my, to hang my argument that you have to join a church if you're going to obey Jesus. Okay, three categories of thought. Category one is building up. Category two, accountability. And category three, leadership. Okay? Building up, or as some Christians know it as, edification, accountability, and leadership. Let's look at the first category here, building up. Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4. First Corinthians 12, verse 4. If you have a pew Bible, does somebody want to shout out the number so everyone else can find it? No, not the, not the reference, brother. The page number. 813. Thank you. Page 813 in the pew Bible. First uh, Corinthians 12, verse 4 says this. Now there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. Verse 6. And there are different activities, but the same God 
activates each gift in each person. So the same God activates each gift in each person. Verse 7, a demonstration of the Spirit is given to who? To each one or every man, to each person. So everyone's given a gift. To do what in verse 7? Read it again. To do what? To profit all or to produce what is beneficial. To do what is good for the body. Every Christian is given a spiritual gift by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you would use it to do good to the body of Christ. To build up the body of Christ. So here's, what, here's my first sub-definition of love. Love requires you to use your spiritual gifts to build up a body of believers. Love demands that you do not waste your spiritual gift, but you use it to build up a specific body of believers. Paul tells the Corinthians here at Corinth, the Christians here, and by extension, all Christians today, that we all have spiritual gifts for the common good of the whole body. That's the members of a body in one locale. So, the spiritual gifts are for the good of the local church to which you are committed. So, here's the command, or the principle. You, brother and sister... You must focus the use of your spiritual gift by the Spirit for the common good of your local church, the body of Christ. You are not allowed to waste the spiritual gift. It's not yours. Who gave it to you? God did. For you? For your own self-indulgence? No, for the body of Christ. You do not love the body of Christ if you do not exercise your gift given to you for the body of Christ. Therefore, you should be part of a church. Hebrews 10. Turn to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. I think, Brother Ken, I'm going to designate you as the page number guy, okay? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. That means you need to be quick on your sword drill. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Anyone else with a pew Bible? 851. Thank you. 851. Here's what it says. And let us consider, or let us be concerned, let us consider one another in order to promote love and good works. Not staying away from our meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you've heard me ask this question before, do not answer it. I want those who've never heard me asking this question before to answer it. There are four possibilities at an answer. What is the main command in verses 24 and 25? I want to hear a guess. I want to hear four guesses. What's the main command here? Stir up. Stir up. Okay, that's one guess. Love. Love one another. That's two guesses. That's a new one. I'm going to have to have five now. <laughs> what else? Be concerned. Encourage. One more. Wow, this is usually the first one that's said, and it's not said yet. Not forsaking the assembling, getting meeting together. Okay, so here are the here are the five: encourage one another, stir up one another, love one another, meet together, and be concerned or consider one another. Now, the right answer—they're all things you need to do. So I'm not saying you have a, a choice between those. But the main command of this text is actually: let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. That's the main command of the passage. What does that mean? What does it mean to consider? To think about, right? To reflect on. So before you meet with the church, you are to consider and think about 
how you can stir each other up to love and good works. That's why you're going to meet together. You can't stir each other up to love and good works if you're not meeting together. And you're going to encourage each other. So the main command is that all, what is it in my prayer list here, 65 active members of our church family, if all 65 or 67 members who are active in our church, if they all considered for, for five minutes, if we all took five minutes on a Saturday night to pray and think about, maybe look at our membership directory and just look at the faces and just say, Lord, how can I stir up others tomorrow? At 10.15 a.m. to love and good works. Who am I going to see tomorrow that I haven't talked to for a while that I could encourage? Imagine if every single member did that in your church every Saturday night. What would Sunday look like? When you're done and you close in prayer. And everyone's quickly scurrying around to get their encouragements out that they were plotting and planning the night before. And who would want to miss church on a Sunday like that? You'd drag yourself to this encouragement fest, right? You don't want to miss out on this because people have been plotting and planning and praying to, to encourage each other. And that's the point here is that love requires you to regularly consider and gather with Christians in order to encourage them. Your presence is necessary. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Your presence is over 50% of your encouragement. Just being there is encouragement. Because you might say, PJ, you know, I've never taken five minutes on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning to consider how I was going to stir each other up before I came to a gathering on Sunday. Does that mean I've never encouraged people? No, it's not true. God's Spirit works through you anyways. And oftentimes, just your very presence is a source of strength to others here. You know, some people, you know, we, we messed up on a song today. We could sing off key. I love hearing saints sing, even if they're singing off key, because I'm one of them. Who sings off key? But that's not the that's not the main reason I love it. I love it because what am I hearing? I'm hearing someone who is dead in their sins, now alive in Christ, singing about how if ever I loved you, Lord Jesus, my Jesus, it's right now. I love you right now. And there were only you could only go back a few weeks or years where they did not love Jesus, but right now they love Him, and I'm hearing them sing that, and that puts steel in my bones. In terms of living for God's glory and standing up for God in this world. That's what we do. We encourage each other just by our very presence. And if we don't, we might go on sinning and find out that we're not really Christians. Look at Hebrews 3. You could go to verse 26 of chapter 10, but we'll go to Hebrews 3. It's a little bit more explicit here. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Just a few pages back. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 say this. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. So there's the, there's the warning. It's possible that among the brothers, those gathered in a church gathering, that among us here, just look around at everyone here, many, most here are professing Christians. It's possible that right here, right now, there is an unbelieving heart amongst us. That might cause you to fall away from the living God. That's possible. That someone thinks they're a Christian and they're not really a Christian. It's possible that some are really Christians and they're going to go through a a season of deep, dark bondage to sin in some very practical way. So what what does the author tell us to do in verse 12? What's the command? Verse 12, what's the command? Take care. Beware. 
watch out. Don't just chill out and think everything's cool, but actually be on the alert that in every Sunday, the hearts of men and women are, are, there's a battle going on in the hearts of men and women between sin and righteousness. There's an evil, unbelieving heart that can depart from the living God. So what should we do? Should we just watch out and be paranoid? Verse 13, what's, what, what should we do practically? But what? Encourage each other. And how often? Daily, and in case you didn't get that, the author repeats himself. As long as it is called today, don't wait till next Sunday. Oh, you see someone and you have a thought of encouraging them. I'll just do it next Sunday. And the author says, no, no, daily, while it is still called today. Why? Verse 13. So that none of you is what? Hardened by sin's deception. In other words, love requires you to regularly encourage and exhort fellow Christians. If you don't do that, I'm arguing that you're not loving one another as Christ has loved you. If you're not regularly encouraging and exhorting fellow believers. Our hearts are like wet cement. Getting tossed around to keep it from what? Hardening, right? And if, if you come on a Sunday, or you, you don't come on Sunday, or you're not being encouraged by people, what happens? You stop stirring up the cement, it gets hard. There's never a time off. You can't just say, you know what, cement, just take a 10-minute break, just take a one-week break, just don't harden for one week. You can't pause it, right? If you stop stirring it, it gets hard. That's how it is in your heart as well. You're never in a state where you're not either being softened or hardened. Every moment of your life, you're either getting softer or harder. And it can change from moment to moment. Praise God for that. We're not stuck in perpetual hardening. But the reality is that every moment of your life, you're either softening or hardening. So what do we need to do? We need to gather together and regularly, daily, with urgency, encourage one another. Going back to Hebrews 10.25, all the more as you see the day, what? Approaching. Approaching. I've said this before. I'll say it here again. We're one week closer to death or the coming of Christ and or the coming of Christ, right? Some of us might not die. He might come today. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, please. And if he doesn't, you're one week closer to dying. In other words, the urgency to encourage each other only increases, not decreases, week after week. So, that's what we're called to do. We can't just pray for each other. I'm not saying don't pray for each other, but I just want to, let me take out one one of our excuses. Sometimes we say, oh, I really have something to say to that person. But I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to pray for them. Can I, can I just bluntly say that that can be an excuse for disobedience? Amen. To just pray when God is telling you to speak to them? It doesn't say here they're hardened, so just pray for them. It says encourage them. You have to speak up. If this church is going to continue to grow in health as God has been gracing us so far, we've got to speak up to each other. Now here's why we need to do this. Here's the motivation behind this. The regular weekly attendance and encouragement is the main way Christians grow. It is the backbone of your life, your spiritual life. Just like family dinners, for many families, is the backbone of the fellowship and health of the, of the, of the family at home, your Sunday gathering is the backbone of your spiritual life and health. I could say this without hesitation and I mean, you know, with complete confidence that the regular weekly attendance and encouragement 
is the main human reason why I am as a mature Christian as I am today. Now, I know I have a long, long way to go. I'm not saying I'm a model in that regard. What I'm saying is every... The main reason why I am as, the main reason for my growth up to this point of my Christian life since 1989 till now, the main reason is the regular gathering and encouragement of my local church at, at Christian Fellowship Bible Church from 1989 to 2007. What's that? 18 years. And then at Crossview Church for six years and now here for 15 months. The regular gathering with my church family is the main reason for my growth, humanly speaking. More than seminary, more than, more than podcasts and, and audio and internet resources, more than books. The saints who have stirred me up are the reason for my growth. To have the same people know me, see me, test me, try me, see an inconsistency from 2007 to 2008 or 2009 to 2010. You don't get that when you visit a church three weeks and leave, right? Because they don't see a pattern in your life. But I can't hide from my church family. And you can't hide either. And that's a blessing. Because they could speak into my life things that people, if I go hang out with, you know, the Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association of Pastors or the Gospel Coalition LA or other Christian friends, they see me in spots. But guess what? You see me every single week. And many of you see me three times a week, right? Or two times a week. And we see each other. And so I can't hide my weaknesses and sin, and I don't want to hide them. I want them exposed and I want you to encourage me and I want to encourage you because that's how we grow. Why would you walk away from this regular, consistent encouragement that God has designed to be a rhythm in your life and for the health of your soul, the way sleep is for your body or the way food is for your body? Would you neglect food for a long time in your life just for fun? Just because you think you don't need it? Would you neglect sleep because you think you don't need it? No, you never neglect sleep. You might even be catching up on it right now, right? <laughs> you, don't, you don't neglect sleep. You need it and you know you need it, so you take it. In a similar way, you need encouragement from the church family. It's not an option. It's vital to your life. So be committed to a group that will regularly and consistently build you up. Be committed to this group of Christians so that they will edify you and so that you will edify them. That's category number one, maybe the longer one. I think the third one is going to be the shortest. Accountability is category number two. Accountability. We're going to talk about this in a full sermon next week. So I'm, not going to, I'm just going to touch on it here. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to read it as soon as I get there. And you might just need to listen if you can't find it. In time. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1 says this. I'm reading verses 1 and 2. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. So let's just give this man the most benefit of the doubt as we can and say it's not his actual biological mom, but it's his stepmom. But still, this is still unspeakably immoral. A man sleeping with his dad's wife and he's a member in the church regularly sharing life with the church and this church is saying we're one of the best churches out there we're one of the most healthy churches look at verse 2 and you are inflated with pride look at how great our church is well you got you got this guy this this professing brother here and you are inflated with pride like you're a healthy church 
Instead, what should you be filled with? Grief. So that he who has committed this act might be what? Removed from your congregation or removed from among you. And he's going to go on. We're going to actually go through this chapter next week. But let me just say this this morning. Paul is telling them to remove this man from among you. So who is the you? The local church. There has to be a you. So you say, well, where is, where, is, where is the local church in the Bible where it says you have to be part of a group? That actually is defined. Well, if you're removing him from among you, he had to first be included among you, right? And if there is no among you to include, then there's no among you to exclude them from. So there must be a mutual understanding of who is included and who is not part of the group. Someone who visits our church for five weeks or seven weeks or seven months or ten years, that doesn't necessarily mean they're part of the group. There is a you that is defined here. And you could exclude a person from the you, or you could include them in the y'all. Right? The you being y'all, all y'all. All y'all, the group, the church. So remove him from among y'all, or keep him in the midst of y'all, but there is a y'all that has to be defined. And that's accountability. You have to be known in your church. Matthew 18. Turn to Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. We will touch on this next week. Our focus will be on 1 Corinthians 5. But Matthew 18, verse 15, says this. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he won't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, let him be like an unbeliever or tax collector to you. So, again, here's why you need a local church for accountability. I hope, if I meet you, and some of you aren't members of a church or our church, I hope that if I'm hanging out with you for lunch today or in some point in the future, and I start gossiping about somebody, I hope you would rebuke me and tell me that I'm sinning. PJ, that's gossip. Okay, thank you. What if I don't listen to you? I hope you would take two or three people with you to to rebuke me again. But after that, what should you do next? If I don't listen to two or three, take them to the Church. church. Now, if you're not part of a church, or if I'm not part of a church, how can we obey that command? Maybe it's the universal church. The Bible does talk about the universal church. So tell the universal church that PJ gossiped last Sunday. How are you going to do that? Go online. Facebook has a few billion, or is it a billion yet? I don't even know how many they have, but even then, and then you use Google Translate to translate PJ gossiped about this on this date and translate in all the languages you can and post it everywhere you can. Is that what he's talking about here? No. He's talking about the local church. You tell the local, you tell PJ's local church, but if PJ's not part of a local church, then there's no accountability, at least on this third level. And so you cannot obey this command if you're not part of a local church. And Jesus did tell us in Matthew 28, verse 20, to teach these disciples to obey what? All that I commanded you, including Matthew 18, verse 17. You can't obey Matthew 18, 17 if you're not part of a church. There needs to be accountability, especially in a culture where churches are not used to holding each other accountable. 
It's odd to mature Christians that churches would actually hold each other accountable. That's when you know we're in trouble in our in our in church culture. When mature Bible loving, Bible teaching, Bible living brothers and sisters find it odd that a church would actually do these things. That's when you know we're in trouble. And we are. So we need to hold each other accountable and actually get to the point of kicking each other out of the church, removing them from among you, if we refuse to repent. The church is for sinners, but it's only for repentant sinners. Because everyone's a sinner in the world. But repentant sinners make up the church. And if you're unrepentant, then you must be removed from the church. Now, the goal is not just to remove them forever. Why do you want to remove them? So that you might restore them, right? Restoration is the goal. Just a side note here. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, um, let me say something to you because you might be misunderstanding this. There is always restoration and forgiveness available and to be celebrated for repentant brothers and sisters who trust Christ afresh. That's why we're the church, because we're gathering around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a gospel of grace and forgiveness and restoration for those who trust in Jesus and repent from their sins. There is always the hope of restoration. Why? Because when Jesus, we read John 13, he said, love one another Thursday night. Friday morning, what does he do at 9 a.m.? He's up on a cross. By 12 p.m., darkness covers the land. The judgment of God is falling on Jesus for PJ's gossip and for all of PJ's sins and for all the sins of every sinner who would ever believe. Falling on him for three hours, he's hanging on the cross in darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God punishes, if you're not a Christian, this is the main message of Christianity. God punishes Jesus on the cross for our sins, even though Jesus committed none of them. He takes our sin on the cross. He is crushed under the wrath and judgment and punishment of God the Father for the sins of the world so that everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus can be forgiven of their sins and restored. If you're not a Christian, I have good news, the best news you'll ever hear in your whole life. God wants a relationship with you, a reconciled relationship with you. He sent His Son to die for your sins and rise from the dead. And He's calling you this morning to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins, turn from your religion, turn from your righteousness, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. His life, His death, His resurrection. And He will save you from your sins. He'll give you His Holy Spirit who will live in you and empower you to live for His glory. And he will join you to a local church so that people can hold you accountable. So what's the point here about love? Love requires that you tell a church and mobilize the church to pursue a sinning member in restoration. If you're going to love one another, that means you need to be able to tell the church and pursue a sinning member to restoration. Now, in our church in, in Los Angeles, we were there for six years and we had excommunicated four people. And I could tell you, the restoration is just a sweet, sweet thing. When people are restored to Christ, the celebration, it's like a party, you know, because you're celebrating someone turning from their sins. I want the church to hold me accountable, and you should want the church to hold you accountable. I want them to rebuke me. I want them to step in when I'm no longer listening to my wife or caring for my children or if I'm about to throw away my whole family and ministry to, to find love with another woman. I want the church 
to get in my face. I want the men of our church to get in my face. Not just because I'm a pastor, though especially because I'm a pastor. If I was just a member of this church, I would want them in my face, pleading with me, rebuking me, and calling me to repentance. PJ, do not throw away your family for this woman and the short-lived pleasure. I want them in my face. Imagine if, if I was part of a church and they didn't get in my face. And here I'm trying to share the gospel with my son. And my wife's trying to share the gospel with my son and daughter and my daughters. And they grow up and they say, well, I don't know how holy Jesus is. I mean, my dad just ran off with another woman and it wasn't a big deal to anyone around in the church. No, I don't want that for my children. I want them to see the holiness and love and grace of God in their father being rebuked and pursued. That's absolutely essential for my family, that I'm part of a church that will hold me accountable. It has to be absolutely essential for you as well. Okay, so join a church that will kick you out. That's point number two. (laughs) There's my happy thought for for the day. Join a church that will love you enough to the point where they'll kick you out. And be willing to be part of a church that will actually kick others out for unrepentance so that they could be restored. Okay. Category number three. I told you this is a quick one. This last one is leadership. Hebrews 13.7. We're going to do a whole message on Hebrew on leadership as well. So we don't need to spend a lot of time on it here. But let me read it to you. Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So here you are. Here's the command. Obey your leaders. Submit to your leaders. Let your leaders watch over you with joy. So loving one another requires you to support and submit to the leaders who lead you and lead those you love. If, if Steve wants to love Chris, one of the ways Steve is going to love Chris as Christ has loved him is for Steve to support the leadership of the church because the leadership of the church affects who? Chris. So one very tangible, necessary way for Steve to love Chris is to support and submit to the leadership of the church. Does that make sense? It's about loving the fellow members of your church that you submit to and support the leadership of the church. Now, is this referring to who's the leaders? Who are your leaders? Is it your favorite TV preacher? Favorite radio or internet preacher? Maybe it's your former pastor or the person who had the biggest impact on your spiritual life. Is that your leader? The one who discipled you? Is it your parents in Hebrews 13, 17? No. Paul's answer in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is the elders of the church, the pastors in Ephesians 4, the overseers, or the old King James would say, the bishops of the church. Those are the leaders you are called to submit to and support. God has given you pastor elders to exercise pastoral authority over you for the good of your soul. It's not the dreaded authority when you're going 15 miles over the speed limit on the freeway and you see a cop behind you. Authority, right? Don't you just say, praise God for authority. So grateful for the authority structures God has placed in our lives to protect us and protect all these good citizens who are driving the speed limit while I speed. That's what we're thinking, right? No, we're dreading the authority because we're guilty, right? And so sometimes we can think of pastoral authority as a, a group or, a, or, or people to be suspicious of. That's not biblical Christian church life. Instead, you should think of pastoral authority as the police coming around the corner as you're getting mugged on the sidewalk. Are you happy to see the cops then? Yeah. Absolutely, right? Now, when you're driving and speeding, not so happy. Getting mugged, 
praise God for police authority, right? You're thankful at that point. And you know what? That's what pastoral authority does. They are shepherding your soul and helping you kill sin in your life because sin is mugging you. Sin is attacking you. Sin is killing and destroying you. And God has given you pastors to watch over your soul so that they don't destroy you. That's not bad authority. Now, it might feel bad because it's not just that sin is mugging you. It's your own sin, so you're the one at fault, right? And so you feel attacked by pastors, perhaps. But that's not the case. It's loving authority. Do you want Jesus to care for you through loving pastors? Jesus is the chief pastor of this church, right? He is. But he uses under-shepherds to tangibly care for your soul. Don't you want that in your life? He calls you to it. So, it's not enough to just attend a church regularly and then just say, PJ's my pastor because I've attended here for six months. If I don't know I'm your pastor, then guess what? (laughs) I'm not your pastor, right? And if, or, or it can go the other way. What if I looked at you and was like, you know, as your pastor, I think you need to do this in your life. And you're saying, who said you're my pastor? I just attend this church. I never told you I was your pastor or you're my pastor. And I, I, I could feel embarrassed, right? If you're not a member of this church, I'm not your pastor. Okay, just, just to be clear. I love you. Guess what I am? Your neighbor. If you're a Christian, guess what we also are? Even more importantly than being a pastor. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. And I love that. That's more important. I don't want to be, belittle that. But just get this straight. I'm not your pastor if, if, if you're not a member of this church. Because those are, and, and, and if you don't have a pastor where you can obey Hebrews 13, 17, guess what you're doing with Hebrews 13, 17? You're disobeying it. I'm not saying you have to join this church, but you have to join a church if you're going to obey Hebrews 13, 17. And so therefore, you need to join a church. So let me define membership here as I bring this all to a close. Let me pull it all together and close up. So we, we talked about building up. We talked about accountability. And then we talked about leadership, right? For these three categories of reasons, you need to join formally commit to a local church as a member. Now, what is membership? Here's how I'm defining membership. Get rid of all your, your all the things you grew up with of what membership is. Throw all that out just for a second. Let me define it, okay? Membership is a mutually understood commitment to one another by a group of Christians intending to obey all the commands of Jesus, particularly the commands given to a local body in the New Testament. That's long, so let me shorten it now. Membership is a mutually understood commitment to full responsibility among Christians. That's what membership is. A mutually understood commitment. So if you say, I'm committed to this church, but the church doesn't know that you're committed to the church, guess what? You're not mutually under, it's not a mutually understood commitment. And that's not obedience to Scripture. Scripture demands that you are, mutual, you are committed to other Christians in a way that everyone mutually understands that you're committed to them and to the leadership of the church. Does that make sense in terms of what membership is? I know I feel like I'm... For those of you who are coming on Sunday nights, I'm beating a dead horse, right? I mean, you've been hearing church stuff. It's coming out of your ears. So, um, but that's okay because our church is moving towards health in this regard. So it's very important that you see this from the word. Let me just close with a few application thoughts and then I'm done. Few thoughts as we close. Um, Your church membership should not be kept out of sentimental value. Church membership is meant to be meaningful. So if you say, well, I want to keep my membership at this church, but I just go here because I live in Bellflower. But my, the church I'm a member of is in North Carolina. Well, that's cool, I guess, sort of. But it's not meaningful, 
right? It doesn't mean anything to be a member of a church that you're not part of. If you can't regularly edify and hold accountable and support leadership, how meaningful is your membership there? It's not biblical membership, right? So I just want to say, don't hold on to membership for sentimental values. And I understand why some people do that, especially on the East Coast, because if you're a member of a church, they have their own graveyard and you get a free plot of to bury yourself. So you don't want to take yourself off the roll. I get that historically. Some churches are like that. But biblically speaking, you don't keep your name on a roll just because it's sentimentally valuable. You, you, you join a church where membership is meaningful, where you regularly attend. Again, to be clear, merely consistently attending a church is not the same thing as faithful and obedient participation in a church. You're going to be in the church for the rest of your life, so you might as well participate participate meaningfully now. If you do this, the church you're a part of will will grow, and you will also grow by your commitment to local church. And if you don't, your spiritual life might continue to just flounder in terms of, I know I should be obeying some things, and you try to obey as much as you can in the Bible, but you don't, you're never fully committed to a church, and that will hurt you, and that will hurt the church that you attend in some ways, just by being a mere attender. For the church member, here's what I want you to do. Four things. Know the fellow members of this church. Some of you still don't know everyone else's name. Get a member, get a directory. There's pictures in the directory, okay? And we don't have, we're not, I know we have 975 members in our church role. I'm not saying know all their names. But the ones who are here, let me just say this. If, you're, if you don't know everyone's name, again, just again, depending on your memory as well, I want to be sensitive to that. But in three months, is that enough time? In three months, you should memorize 66 names. Is that, is that too hard? Know everyone's name and their faces. This is, we're in a small church. I mean, look how many empty seats we have. We should know everyone's name. Okay? Know the names of your fellow members and pray for them. Number two, attend regularly. Number three, disciple non-Christians and Christians by gospelizing them as a member of this church. And number four, support, affirm, and hold me and your leaders accountable. Jim and Al, hold us accountable, but support us while you hold us accountable. It's not one or the other. You can't just say, well, my job is to hold you accountable. Yes, hold me accountable. I'm not not fighting that. That's good. I want to encourage that. But support is also part of biblical membership, right? So you need to do that as well. For our church family, two closing exhortations. Number one, I think we need to affirm a biblical church covenant. And I know you've been hearing me talk about it. Um, we're We're going to be reintroducing that in a few months. Maybe even sooner, maybe even next month or two. I'm going to talk to the deacons about it. We're going to get our heads together on this. But we need to re-adopt a church covenant that expressly states what our commitments are to one another. So it's clear to the church members. And number two, we need to feel a special obligation as a church to advance the gospel ministry of this church. I want you to love other churches. I love other churches. The Southern Baptist Associations that we're part of. The Gospel Coalition churches, I love other churches. I pray for them. We pray for them every Sunday night. But you need to feel a special obligation to this church, if you're a member of this church, or to your own local church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for Jesus, who makes us his body. We thank you for the gift of encouragement and building up. We would not be built up individually or as a church were it not for members considering how to stir each other up to love and good works. So thank you for the love we have for one another, which comes from heaven and comes from your very heart into our souls here on earth. We pray that we would grow in our love and our building up of one another. 
We thank you for the gift of accountability. I thank you, Lord, for the members of this church who have told me that I have been sinning, who have told me that I'm wrong. I praise you, God. We praise you for the encouragement and the accountability we have here, where people get to know us and and muster up the courage to correct and restore each other. We thank you for that. And Father, we thank you for the gift of leadership. Because it's not our idea, it's yours. You have found in your wisdom to give human leaders as pastors, pastor elders, and as deacons to the church, to lead the church. And so, Father, we thank you that we have human leaders who imperfectly, yet realistically, embody the the leadership of Jesus to a local church family. Help us, Lord, to build this church by your grace to the point where everyone encounters Jesus in everything we do. And we pray for anyone here who's a Christian that if they're not part of a church, that they would join a church, a gospel-preaching church. And then we pray, Lord, for our non-Christian friends, that they would see that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is their only hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.